Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the gospel and for the promise of forgiveness, for the fact that you paid for our sins on the cross, that you impart them by grace through faith. And Father, this gospel is, is stirring, it is wonderful, it is transformational. The gospel is a reason why we are here today. The gospel is the good news that we tell other people. And I pray that you'll give us a deeper appreciation of the gospel as we read the gospel of Matthew, or gospel of Luke, in Christ's name, amen. The date was June 17th, 2015. And a young man by the name of Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, if you don't know about the AME denomination, uh, they're actually very theologically conservative. They have a high view of scripture, an evangelical understanding of the gospel. They take a strong stance against abortion, and they're very much in favor of the biblical ethic on marriage. Well, this day, Dylan walked in and he joined a Bible study. He participated in the Bible study, and then at the end of the Bible study, he stood up, shouted some racial slurs, pulled out a gun, and murdered nine people. He walked out of church. He was then arrested, and when he appeared before the judge for the first time, the victim's families had a chance to address him. And they extended forgiveness. One of the victim's daughters said this, You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you and I forgive you. You She wanted him to experience God's forgiveness. And you would think that this would be inspiring and moving for many people to see Christian love and conviction in action, but not all responded with praise and admiration, some with consternation. One author, one columnist wrote this, The parade of forgiveness is disconcerting, to say the least, and then went on to say that all the admiration and appreciation for the acts of forgiveness is really about protecting whiteness and America as a whole. When black forgiveness is the means for white atonement, it enables white denial about the harms that racist violence creates. Forgiveness was offensive. Another author, in light of the Me Too movement, which was a pushback against sexual abuse and sexual harassment, and in many ways did a good thing, was poised, basically tried to, to answer the question, should we forgive men who assaulted us? And this is what she wrote. The notion that victims of crime, oppression, and sexual assault must forgive their oppressors piles more oppression and harshness on the victim. Insisting that she forgive plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. Forgiveness is overrated. It heals neither the body or mind. Let the criminal ask his gods if there be any for forgiveness. Instead of talking about victims, how victims must forgive, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of the criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. 
Forgiveness is offensive. Often when I share the gospel and I share the gospel of grace, I'll get the following objection. So you're telling me that a rapist who kills his victim and repents in prison and has faith, that person will go to heaven, but my agnostic grandmother will go to hell, right? That is deeply offensive. To offer forgiveness freely is an offense to the righteous sentiments of humanity. And as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and in Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26, we see an act of forgiveness that offends people. If you haven't, please turn there to Luke chapter 5, our text for today. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what, was, up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, in this passage, the Gospel of Luke makes a turn on, on many levels. One, we're introduced to the Pharisees, the arch nemesis of, of Jesus. You could say that they are the villains of the, of the Gospel. But secondly, there is a link between faith and forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not necessarily a new concept in Luke. Uh, literally, when you look at the word forgive, it means to release, to release. I think that's just a great term, right? You release the debt. And, and prior to this, Jesus was prophesied to have a ministry of forgiveness. Zechariah prophesies over the John the Baptist, and we read in Luke 1, 76 through 77, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Right? That is something he is to do. When Jesus speaks in Bethlehem, remember that, or not Bethlehem, in Nazareth, when he goes to his hometown, he summarizes Isaiah when he says in Luke 4, 8 through, 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? Liberty to the captives, liberty to the oppressed. He's, he's about releasing people. And all these miracles that follow up when he you know, liberates the man from the power of the demon, when he liberates Peter's mother-in-law from the power of sickness, when he is healing people, he's releasing people from the curse. But in this passage, he releases a man from the debt of sin. Now, Israel at this time, they had an allowance for this. It is possible to be released from the debt of sin, but you had to do it the right way through the right channels. You would have to offer a Mosaic sacrifice, right, according to the Mosaic law. That is how you do it. The law mediated forgiveness. But when Jesus offers forgiveness, he does it on the basis of this man's faith apart from any temple ritual. And this was scandalous to everybody who heard it. They were offended by forgiveness. And when you really think about it, it is somewhat offensive. As we'll talk about later on, to offer somebody a free pass just doesn't seem right, does it? So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through this passage and understand why forgiveness is so offensive. And then I'm going to talk to you about how to get over your offense at forgiveness. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the critics, the confidence, the clemency, the charges, the credential, and the conclusions, right? Nothing like a trusty thesaurus to help you with sermon outlines. So it all worked out. So let's look at the critics. Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, here we see the term Pharisee. It literally means separated one or holy one. Uh, this was a small number of men, about 6,000, who had this amazing authority in Israel. You see, they made it their mission to restore Israel to faithfulness to the law of Moses. They weren't necessarily political. I mean, their idea was if we were to return everybody to faithfulness of the law of Moses, God would bless their nation once again, and that is going to be how they return to the golden age and expel Rome, through religious faithfulness. Now, these weren't the people who ran the, the temple. They were actually, this was actually a lave movement. Uh, unlike the Sadducees who ran the temple and were kind of power brokers and kind of intertwined with the politics of the day, uh, they were more devoted to scriptural teaching, and they had a very large following among the populace. They were kind of the people's pastors. That was the one that everyone listened to. Unlike the Sadducees, they believed in the entirety of the Old Testament, not just the first five books. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in angels and demons. Uh, they were, well... You know, theologically in line with a lot of what we believe and teach about the Bible. And within these Pharisees was a, a smaller subset of the scribes. The, in an illiterate society, somebody who can read or write, I mean, they were the educated. They were the ones who studied the law. They were uh, religious parliamentarians, right? They kind of knew what the rules were, what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. 
And what we find in this passage is people from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, basically uh, the three corners of Israel, if you will, all gathered into this house, and they're sitting attentively, listening to Jesus teach. He's a man who is full of the power of the Spirit. He was doing miracles, and they're trying to make sense of this guy. Who, who is he? But they weren't the only ones who were drawn to him. We see another group who was drawn to him, starting in verse 18. Men with confidence in Jesus. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith. Now we know from Mark that there were four friends. This paralytic could not walk, had four friends. They heard about this miracle worker. And what's interesting is they could have heard about how he cast out demons, cast out fevers, maybe healed some bad backs. But helping a paralytic walk again? Ah, I'm not sure if he could do that. But in faith, right, they go ahead and they make the journey. You know, there are, you know, pallbearers, right, carrying the paralytic man on his litter. When they show up at the house, it's packed. There is no way that they can, they know Jesus is in the house, but they can't conceive of a way of, of parting the crowds and, and, and kind of forcing this man into the presence of Jesus. And they could have said, well, you know what, it's just not meant to be. Yeah, sorry, buddy, I mean, we want to take you in there, but you can see the crowd, we can't get through. But then they saw the house. Now, in Palestine at the time, they normally had two-story houses. So the first story would be about six feet off the ground. They were shorter back then. And then they would lay some, some wooden beams across a wall. They would put some reeds or some thorns and then they'd mix some clay and kind of create this big patio area, okay? And you can access it through a ladder, through a stairwell. People would go up there because it didn't smell as bad as the bottom story, right? Those of you who, you know, kind of live, imagine, I mean, that's just what it is. They would go up there to pray. They would maybe go up there to hang their laundry. Well, these men decide that they're going to go up there as Jesus is teaching. And, and I can just imagine the scene, right, where, where Jesus is teaching when they kind of hear this, you know, this scraping sound, right? And, and they're kind of looking around, what's going on? Do you hear this? Yes, we hear it. And then you see some, some clay drop from the ceiling, and Jesus probably made some eye contact with the homeowner, right? It's okay. We'll get this taken care of. I've done carpentry before. <laughs> and then the hole kind of widens. And then these men are standing there and they're kind of letting this guy down. We don't know if he rigged ropes or, or whatever, but he's now, he's teaching and this paralyzed man is just right before him in front of everybody. Right? There, there's a there's a determination that these people had, right? They would not take no for an answer. There was, a, there was a pursuit. They had faith that Jesus could heal them, right? And then Jesus gives an unusual response. He grants clemency. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, 
or friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now imagine that you are reading Luke for the first time, okay? You don't know how this turns out. Theophilus is hearing this, and he hears about how, okay, Jesus cast out the demon. Jesus goes ahead and he heals the, um, you know, the, the sick mother-in-law. People are all coming and having all their diseases healed, right? Your expectation would be that he was going to heal this paralytic. I, I would imagine that this paralytic, right, who, who also had faith, right, he is the one who kind of worked with his friends. They wouldn't have transported him without his consent, Right? That his expectation would have been he would have been healed and, and this great miracle would have taken place. But here he says, your sins are forgiven you. Back when I'd read my kids' children's stories, one of the favorites was Jack and the Beanstalk. You guys know the plot of that? Jack is a poor peasant. They are impoverished. Their last you know, their last possession with any liquidity would be their dairy cow. He takes the cow to the market. His mother is expecting that he gets, bring some money so they can pay the rent and pay their bills. Now, what does he do? He sells it for some magic beans. He brings the magic beans back. His mom asks, how much did he get for the cow? Well, I got these magic beans. She takes it, she throws it out. See, a lot of times people would look at, let's say, forgiveness as a bunch of magic beans, right? They don't, they, they don't have an appreciation for the value of forgiveness. If we were to say that God offers forgiveness to you, uh, the typical response is, well, I didn't know I needed it. So are you saying I've done something that needs to be forgiven? Uh, the concept that there is a holy God who might be angry with you and sentenced you to an eternity in hell is like, well, we know God loves everybody and he would never do that, right? So forgiveness is treated like magic beans. But in this case, Jesus makes it clear that this is valuable for, a com- for a healing to be really complete. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's different ways you could take this. It could be that this this man is paralyzed because of his sin. Maybe he got into some sort of drunken brawl that left him, uh, that left him paralyzed. Or it could be a result of, of, of Adam's sin, where through no fault of his own, uh, perhaps an accident or some autoimmune attack on his spinal cord, he's not able to walk again. But either way, when God made people with legs, the intention was that they should walk. There's something wrong. The curse is upon him because of sin. And he says, your sins, my friend, are forgiven you. He's saying, I have the divine authority to declare that you are forgiven. And this causes some consternation. And the following charges are brought against Jesus in verse 21. And when the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right, there's this little murmur in the audience, right? They're expecting a healing. He gives forgiveness. And all of a sudden, these, these Pharisees and these scribes who are experts in the law are like, wait a second. I don't see any authorization for someone to do that. In fact, it is blasphemous. Now, blasphemous can be 
a variety of sins. It could be claiming to be God or using the Lord's name in vain. So in what sense are they meaning it here? Well, Jesus has breached forgiveness protocol. He is, for a variety of reasons, doing things that he's not authorized to do. He's attacking the character of God in their minds. For one, it is presumptuous for Jesus to offer forgiveness, right? Who is Jesus to forgive on behalf of God or to say, God told me that you are forgiven? Who is Jesus to say that? It's presumptuous. Secondly, it's not really his place. Now, let's say you go out to your car and, and you notice that there is a big dent in your car, multiple dents. Apparently, George Leeser, God bless him, was joyriding in the parking lot. <laughs> and he singled out your car and he rammed it. And you're pretty upset at George. And George realizes that was kind of foolish. Rick Morgan dared him to do it and that's why he did it. <laughs> and he's offering to pay for damages. And I step in and say... No, George, you're forgiven. And you're about to take the money, right? It's not my place to do that, right? You're the one who was sinned against, and you're the one who has to eat the cost. You see, it's not his place to offer forgiveness for crimes against God. Thirdly, it was understood that a blanket declaration of forgiveness was something that only God could do. Only God could give a blanket declaration that all your sins are forgiven. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you, right? Only God can blot out all sin. That is something that he can do because... All sin ultimately is against God. Like one of the great sinful acts in the Bible is when David committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And in Psalm 51, when he confesses his sin to the Lord, he says this, Isaiah 51, 4, against you and you only. He doesn't name the other victims. Doesn't mean that there weren't other victims. It meant that he had a keen understanding that ultimately his sin was an offense against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Only God can make that kind of declaration. But fourthly, forgiveness is available in the Old Testament, but it has to be mediated through the law. A priest can declare a man forgiven, but according to Numbers 15.25, it was done the following way. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And so they bring an offering, they follow the rules, the protocol of temple ceremony, and then the priest will say, you are forgiven. But Jesus doesn't do that. He bypasses all of that. He sees faith and says, 
you're forgiven on that basis alone, and that was blasphemous. So who are you, Jesus, to do that? And he gives the credential. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Now, we don't know if this was some sort of keen intuition. I tend to think that he's operating the power of the Spirit, and he kind of knew exactly what they were thinking. And he knows that they're all questioning him in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. You could say that this might be a prophetic credential, but, but he offers an indisputable credential that he can grant clemency on the basis of faith. Verse 3, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? I mean, how, how would you answer that question? What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, on one hand, if you're to say, rise and walk, that would be very difficult to say because your bluff could be called right away, right? That you can't make a claim, go ahead and stand up, son, go ahead. And right then, you would know if the guy's a fraud. So instinctively, you'd say, well, that seems to be the harder thing to say. But what about your sins are forgiven? Well, a charlatan can say that. A false teacher can say that, a blasphemer can say that, but saying that your sins are forgiven and procuring forgiveness of their sins is quite a different thing. And Jesus would basically say something that he will make possible by doing the hardest work anybody has ever done. He would go ahead and live the perfect life in spite of the full frontal assault of Satan and this world. He would be betrayed he would be convicted, he'd ultimately be crucified, he'd be tortured to death, he'd be shamed to all, he'd have his own father turn on him. He would endure the righteous wrath of God. He would do all that to secure forgiveness of sins. That is actually the harder thing to do. But then, to answer their credential, how do you know that his sins can be forgiven? How do you know that he has the authority to do that? Well, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And this is the crux of the passage. He is the Son of Man. Now, that is more than just stating the obvious, like I'm also a Son of Man. I mean, what else would I be a Son of? Son of Man's a title. In Ezekiel, it's used multiple times to refer to Ezekiel, who is called to service to Yahweh, to tell people who don't want to hear what Yahweh has to say, right? It's a, there's an element of suffering and sacrificial service to the Lord. In Daniel, it's used in a different way. Daniel has this great vision where he looks into the sky, and in verse 13, I saw in the night vision, so behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days being the Lord, the Son of Man comes to him. He is this apocalyptic figure who's going to come from the sky to the earth and judge the nations. 
And so 25 times this term Son of Man is being used in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes it refers to his, his humanity, his suffering on behalf of service to God. But here he is using it in terms of he is the judge. He is the one who will mete out punishment and he is the one who will also forgive sins. You see, in all of this, there is a pretext of judgment. There is a pretext of judgment that this man will be judged ultimately for his sin, for his sins. Now, people often ask, how can a good God send good people to hell? Right, how would he answer that question? There's no such thing as good people. I mean, the truth is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you might have some rules for yourself, like I try to be a kind person, I try to be selfless, I try to look out for the little ones. I mean, you can list all the wonderful things you try to do, but do you even keep your own law perfectly? I doubt it. Right? If I were to have like a book of every thought that you've had for this past week, would you want me to read that out loud? Would you like me to share it with your spouse, with your parents? What would I find when I read the chapter on Pastor Dave? Right. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, all of us know that we have fallen short. I mean, there's no good people, and the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to be judged for what we have done. And when the Son of Man comes, he will judge everyone. So, so that they may know that the Son of Man not only has authority to judge, but to forgive sins, he's about to do a miracle. He said to the man who's paralyzed, verse 24, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. It was about 16 years ago um, that I married a couple who were friends of mine, Danny and Roxy. Remember Danny and Roxy, right? Uh, Danny was somebody I, I kind of mentored and discipled in the college ministry. He met and fell in love with, uh, uh, with a student at the master's college. They got engaged, they got married, and they actually lived in our apartment complex. And for one month, all seemed to be going well until um, Roxy had to go to the emergency room because of some severe pain. Um, eventually, uh, she lost feeling in the lower half of her body, was transferred to UCLA Medical Center, and was in the same ward that was helping Christopher Reeves. If you remember, you know, the first version of Superman who lost feeling in his legs and became a quadriplegic. And as I kind of walked through the process with them, I learned a lot about paralysis and what they were telling them was, Roxy needs to get feeling in her legs and be able to use her legs within three months. If she doesn't, her muscles will completely atrophy. It'll take two to five years for her to walk normally again. Right? Three months. Now, I presume that this man was paralyzed for longer than three months. And here Jesus says... Not get your feeling back. <laughs> get the sensation in your limbs. Become unparalyzed. He actually wants him to rise and walk without the assistance of a cane or a walker. Not only is he to rise and walk, he's to pick up his pallet. I mean, this is the impossible, isn't it? And immediately all at once his legs are strengthened he's able to stand up he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on 
and went home glorifying God. I mean, this was a moment. People were witness to two miracles. Number one, a man's sins have been forgiven. And two, that miracle of forgiveness was verified by a paralytic man walking again. And this is the conclusion. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So what was the greatest miracle? I would imagine most people in the audience, not reading their mind, that the amazing thing that they saw was a paralyzed man walking again, right? They don't make this summary statement until after that miracle takes place. But if you were to look back at what is the greatest miracle between the two, do you know what it would be? That a man who is a sinner has been forgiven. And that this forgiveness was mediated by faith. And when something is mediated by faith, it is all of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation by grace is always mediated by faith. Now, there are some religions who will try to hold to, you can be saved by grace, but it's not mediated by faith, it's mediated by different works or different sacraments. I listened to an interview with a missionary of a missionary to Italy who shares the gospel with Roman Catholics. And, and a Roman Catholic would say, yeah, we believe that salvation is by grace, but it's imparted by doing these sacraments for the church. You have to be baptized, do the sacrament of penance. I mean, you have all these other sacraments. You do these works, and then you receive grace. And so he'd explain the gospel to them, and then he'd ask him this question. If you were to stand in heaven, why would God let you into heaven? And they'd say, well, because... You know, I've done all these sacraments. And then he'd ask this follow-up follow question. So when you are in heaven with this understanding, who gets the glory for being there? Who gets the glory? When we go to heaven, is it going to be something where we see Jesus and say, we did it? Or will it be we see Jesus and say, you did it? Who gets the glory? See, if salvation is done by anything that we do, if we get grace through some of the works that we do, then we have something to boast about. We can feel superior to other people. And that's why, ultimately, salvation by grace, through faith, is pretty offensive to people. Number one, it assumes that you need grace because you can't do it on your own. And number two, when you're able to achieve salvation, you're able to explain why I have salvation, not somebody else. You can develop what I call the wage theology. This summer, my youngest son got his first job, real job. He, he worked in the fields, stringing fence, right? Made him a man. And as he worked, I mean, there's kind of this period when you get your first job, I'm not sure if you remember, it's like, why am I doing this? Why am I flipping burgers at McDonald's? Why 
Am I shaking this French fry? I mean, you can tell my first job was McDonald's. But, uh, you know, why am I doing this? And then payday comes, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because every hour that I worked, I obligate McDonald's to pay an an hourly salary, an hourly wage. Right, so a lot of times we can have like this wage thing where as you work, you obligate somebody to pay up. And so when it comes to, let's say, our faith and our approach to religion, we can have a wage theology where I obligate God by doing all these good deeds that in response, he's obligated to do this for me, right? That's wage theology. But according to the Bible, the wages of sin is death, right? It's condemnation. Yeah, that's the only thing you can earn is your death sentence. But according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not mediated by works. It's not mediated by rituals. It's mediated only by faith. Not faith in faith, not faith in the church, not faith in people, but faith in Christ. So why is that offensive? Well, I think grace is offensive for a number of reasons. I'll give you four. Number one, God can ask too much of you. You know, a lot of times we want to put boundaries on what we can do. Like you might sign a a union contract. If I work, you can only ask me to work 40 hours. If you ask me to work more than 40 hours, I I can say no without any repercussions. And if I say yes, you have to pay me time and a half. You ask me to work on a holiday, I get this rate, I get this rate. And, and often when you sign this contract, you have a certain measure of control because you have this tit-for-tat relationship. But if that is taken away, right, where you could say, God, I'm going to do this for you, this for you, this for you, I'm going to give 10%, I'm going to show up on Sunday, but don't ask me to do anything else, I am obligated to receive heaven. You, you're obligated to give me heaven on the basis of doing these simple works, But if God says, uh, actually, the only reason why you're going to go to heaven is because of my grace and my mercy, there's no real limit on what God can ask of you, right? You are no longer in control of your salvation. It is something that is all of God. Secondly, people are not drawn to grace because they fear libertinism, right? If everything is motivated by grace then why be good? If everything is motivated by grace, if, if everyone receives a full scholarship to college, no matter your GPA, why try hard in school? Right? We, you have that whole student loan forgiveness. Right? That's offensive to a lot of people. It's like they didn't deserve it. And so we want to put rules on people And we're afraid that if there is grace, nobody will follow the rules. Nobody will be motivated to change. If members of this black church offer forgiveness to to a white supremacist, then then what's going to stop that person from doing it again? It's libertinism. Thirdly, we want to think that we're better than others. Somebody who gets a lot of pastor points gave me a t-shirt that says on, on one side, Jesus loves you, and then on the back side, then again, he loves everybody. I love that. 
right? We, we often want to believe that the reason why Jesus loves me is because I'm pretty special. I'm pretty awesome. Jesus looked at me and said, I want him on my team. But the fact is, Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you in spite of you, not because of you. His love for you is a testimony to the magnanimous nature of his love, not to your own inherent lovability. And that offends people, right? <laughs> because we want to believe that we're special, that, that there's something about us that's so special that we obligate God to love us. But if God's love was contingent upon what you do or who you are or how you look, how secure would you be in that relationship? But God's love comes from him. He loves you because he, he wants to. And fourth, the reason why grace offends is because we can no longer put other people in our debt. I mean, have you ever thought about why people hold grudges? Grudges is a, it's a form of revenge. You have done something to hurt me. And so the relationship scale is out of whack, right? You made me feel like this. When you insulted me in public, when you, when you questioned my integrity, when you stabbed me in the back, when you said those things about me to my friends, you did this to me. And I want you to experience the same pain, right? If, if that person were to just come up to you and say, will you just forgive me? And you didn't feel like they meant it. You wouldn't want to give that person a free pass because they need to pay a relational debt. Now, if they were to come up to you and just say, Dave, I know that when I called you a walrus in front of all your friends, that must have hurt you so much. But you know who's been hurt by it? I've been hurt by it. I cannot believe that I called you a walrus. I'm the walrus, Dave. You're in peak physical condition. You look wonderful. You're great. You're so handsome. To, to do that was just my own jealousy and my own spite. I'm going to write an email to everybody to say that I'm really the walrus. And here's $1,000. Will you forgive me? Make it two grand and we'll talk. Is that, is that grace? No. It's like, when you feel bad enough, then maybe I'll forgive you. And part of that is because I want to control. I want an extra thousand bucks out of you. You know, from a societal level, you know, if we all grant forgiveness to everybody, then our society will never change. The oppressors are going to keep on oppressing. Holding grudges is a way of keeping power. And that's why the parable of 10,000 talents, man, that can offend people. To say that you have to forgive somebody of a smaller debt because God has forgiven you of this huge debt, that you as a forgiven person are to throw away the ledger, that is deeply offensive. Because ultimately what grace means is that you have to have a certain degree of self-renunciation. I have no claim on people's sin against me. I understand 
that the only way that I will ever get saved is not because of anything I've done. It's all of God. And I trust him for it because I trust in his character. I trust him in his mercy. And I trust Christ for his work. And sadly, many people don't want to humble themselves because at the end of it, they don't really want forgiveness. They want God to give them something else. They want God to create a, a more righteous society, to create a utopia on earth where the oppressors are done away with once and for all. They want to have leverage in their relationship to make sure that their spouse or their friends know who's in charge. Or perhaps they want to walk again and they're disappointed with the magic bean offer of forgiveness. They don't recognize the beauty of forgiveness, that that really is the greatest miracle. Now, Johnny Erickson Tata was a high school athlete. She lettered in tennis and swimming. She was actually voted the best athlete in her high school class. And a month after she graduated, she was on a raft in the Chesapeake Bay, did an inverted pike, and her head hit the sand, sandy bottom, and she broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. She was a, a Christian at the time, but by her own admission, she wasn't a very strong one. But then she actually read this passage in Luke and was drawn to it. Jesus could heal a paralytic. And so she asked the elders to pray for her, anointing her with oil, and her family would wheel her in so they would do that. She would go to the equivalent of Benny Hinn and to all these healing crusades hoping that perhaps a miracle could happen and that she could one day walk again. She wanted to walk again. She wanted to be healed. After seeing another faith healer and after it didn't work again, she began thinking to herself, if I can't be healed, then I'm just not going to do this. I am not going to live this way. And so she returned to this passage, to this passage of healing, and she made an adjustment. She began to reconsider the greater miracle. And I quote, Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because, and only because, he had authority as a son of God to forgive sin. It was the point he wanted to make with the Pharisees. For him, healing withered legs would take no more effort than setting stars and moons in motion. For Jesus, it was all merely finger work. But when it comes to forgiving sin, it was no easy effort for our Savior. Our redemption required blood and a strong arm of salvation. Ultimately, she wanted the greatest miracle, which was forgiveness, and that was enough. Forgiveness by grace, through faith, is the greatest miracle. And friend, if that kind of forgiveness offends you, then you actually need it more than you know. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for the free offer of forgiveness given to anyone who has faith in you, who looks to you, who trusts that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the full brunt of the wrath of God that was intended for us. 
Lord, for those people who understand that their sin actually deserves divine wrath, may they look to you and look to the cross where divine wrath was satisfied. May they look to your risen son who conquered sin and death. And may they place their faith in you. Lord, I pray that as a church that we will treasure forgiveness and that we will treasure grace and see ourselves as unworthy sinners who have been redeemed by the strong arm of salvation by a great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.